It's a joy to be with you. I want to welcome those who are visiting us. Be welcome. It's so wonderful to hear your voices singing. And especially one of my favorite hymns, There is a Fountain. I love that hymn. You better play at my funeral. I love that hymn. It's so good. Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. And please don't fear. We are not going to start the exposition all over again. Would you stand if you can? Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And then you're going to move to chapter 4. Verse 21 and 22. So first, Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, the holy ones in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now let's go to chapter 4, verse 21 and 22. Greet every saint every holy one, in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, it's so wonderful to come to you and call you Abba. Thank you for adopting us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on our place. We pray they would be working in us. This whole service is supernatural. We need you to empower us, to enable us. Otherwise, it's all carnal, fleshly. So I pray that your Holy Spirit be immersing this whole service in Christ Jesus. May our giving, our praying, our fellowship, the preaching, the listening, be pleasing in your sight. We pray for your Churches in Salem, bless your people. Help your sub-shepherds to be faithful and proclaim your word. Feed your flock here in Salem, Lord. Pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world. We pray your blessing upon your church. Brothers and sisters in Africa, Nigeria, Sierra Leone. In Europe, North, South America, in Asia, let your kingdom come through suffering, through persecution. Cause your church to grow in holiness and your name be glorified. Thank you for this body. Thank you for all these brothers and sisters here. It's a privilege to serve with each one of them. Thank you for saving us and uniting our hearts together. 
pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said last Lord's Day, we finish our series of exposition in, in Philippians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And what I want to do is just step back now and just pull some of the main themes, draw some the main themes of Philippians and apply to our church. So the main title will be a Philippians-like church. And we are going to be applying the major themes and the major teachings of Philippians to our church. Remember that the letters were written to local churches. So Philippians is a letter written to a local church. And the Lord wants us to imitate and follow after what He's teaching in that letter. Amen? And to start... I think it's important for us to look at two major subjects as it comes to a biblically structured church. And that's the subject of church leadership and church membership. Church leadership, church membership. There is much confusion in relation to church leadership and membership. Therefore, we need God's holy word to instruct us, to teach us. So, for example, as it comes to church leadership, I invite you to go to different church websites in our town here, in our city. Just pick different church websites and go and try to see the part, the, the, the tab, leadership. It's going to be probably staff. So, you go to the staff and tell me how many different titles you, you, you will find there for leaders in the church. So many different titles. So many different pastors. And you might ask, what is the issue? What is the deal? What is the big deal with that? It's very simple. Once you start adding offices, titles to the church that the Bible does not have, you have no qualifications for those offices. Then you have a bunch of people who just serve however they want and whomever they want as leaders in a local church. And if you have a leadership that's not biblically qualified, that will impact, that will affect and infect the local church. Amen? That's why we need to know what are the, the offices in a local church. You have pastor of music, pastor, youth pastor, Children's pastor, all sorts of staff. What is that? How about members? Who should be members in a local church? Anybody who shows up at church? Anybody who enters those doors can suddenly be accepted as a member? So Philippians will help us together with the rest of the Bible. So, the outline is very simple. We are going to be looking at a biblically structured church. First, the leadership. And then, in relation to members. And chapter 1, verse 1 of Philippians will help us. You see that Paul is addressing the church, but he has two very unique and specific group of people here. First, he addressed the whole congregation, all the saints. And then he targets two groups. You see, the overseers... Episcopoi, the bishops, and the deacons. And those are the two offices in a local church. According to the New Testament, once the apostles died, 
the prophets as the foundation of the church and they pass away, you have two main offices with biblical qualifications, and that's the office of elders or bishops or pastors and deacons. That's it. So you can turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul, in verse 14 and 15, he gives us one of the reasons why he's writing this letter to Timothy. Look how he says, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things, I'm writing this letter, instructing you about the local church. So that if I delay, you may know how one must behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So you see that the local church is the household of God. And in a a household, you must have structure, otherwise you have chaos. So in God's household, there is God-given structure and God-given pattern of behavior. You don't come to church the way you want and do whatever you want. That's not your house. That's God's house. Amen? And that's what Paul is doing. So he's teaching the church how they must behave. How to be biblically structured, to have order in God's household. So then you can see in chapter 3, starting verse 1 through verse 13, that Paul is giving here the two offices that will help bring structure to God's household, to the church. So Paul clarifies what the two major offices are, elders and deacons, and who is supposed to serve in these offices. And we live in a time when it's tempting to see leadership as something of the devil. Oh, leaders, that's satanic. But leadership is actually a gift from God Himself. And remember that in heaven, everyone is holy. There is no sin and there is structure in leadership in heaven. And He gives leaders. He gives leaders to the household. He gives leaders to the church. And He gives leaders to our life in the state, the civil authorities. Leadership is not optional. Some of us are, when you're growing up, because that's very infantile, we, we like anarchy. Uh, that's very infantile. Because as soon as you start realizing and growing, you say, eh, things don't work with anarchy. Somebody's going to be leading this whole thing here. And there is this precious gift given to the church that's leadership so Christ Jesus as the head of the church as the senior pastor the only senior pastor is Jesus Christ he is the senior pastor of the church he has given pastors he has given what we call shepherd teachers to the church according to Ephesians chapter 4 and then in Hebrews chapter 13 Hebrews 13:17 Here's what the word of the Lord says Obey your leaders that's a command it's not optional for Christians obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls 
as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it, it assumes, that, that's very clear, it assumes that every single Christian will be a member in a local church under a leadership. That's what it's assuming. Look at that. Obey your leaders and submit to them. So it's assuming that every single Christian is part of a local church with leaders over them. That's a beautiful thing. And that's... You talk to people and people say, I don't, I don't need a church to be a Christian. I don't need to be in a church. And then you ask, okay, so how do you obey the Lord's commandments? Because if you love Him, you need to obey His commandments. And, and the context of obeying His commandments is in the life of a local church. And I often ask people who say that they don't need a church, I say, who are your leaders that you're obeying and submitting? I don't have leaders. I don't need leaders. Oh, so you are wiser than God Himself. As He tells every believer to obey and submit to their leaders. Who are your leaders? And the same when people just show up in this church and they're not members. And they say, who, who are your leaders? And they say, you guys. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. I'm not your leader. I'm not going to give an account for your life. Look at it right here. They're going to give an account. You have not committed to this body, had not entered into a covenant with this body. Therefore, I'm not. And the elders here are not your leaders. So, the author of Hebrews simply calls them your leaders. The Greek word hegemoi was used for military leaders. And I have here one lexicon says to be in a supervisory capacity, leading, guiding. The picture is of one who goes ahead of the people, guiding and guarding them. So every local church is to have leaders. And every Christian is to be in a local church under biblical leadership. And of course, sometimes under God's strange providence, there will be churches that will not have leaders. But they must be striving to have leadership. That's, that's the churches in Crete. Paul tells Titus that he left Titus there to do what? To put things in order and appoint leaders. So you had local churches without leaders. But that's rare. And when you have that, you need to be striving to have godly biblical leadership. Amen? So the author of Hebrews just says leaders. Who are these leaders? And then you go through the rest of the New Testament and you find out that these leaders are known as elders or shepherds or overseers. Those are three titles for the same office. It's not three different people. It's not that in a church you have one bishop, one pastor, and one elder. No. Those are all titles for the same office. The overseer or bishop derives from the old English biscop, and that's based on the Greek for episkopos, the one who is oversight. And... We don't have time, but just I encourage you to do that. You can go home and just look at Acts chapter 20, 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 3, and then Titus 1. And you can see how the authors of the Bible, they use all these different words for the same office. So we can say that an elder, presbyteros, 
does not necessarily refer to the age. It became just a title for a leader. So, for example, in the Old Testament, you can find an elder, and that does imply that he's old. He could just be the head of his household. He could be in his late teens and be an elder because he was the head of his household. And he had city leaders who were called elders and did not necessarily imply that they were old. It was basically a title for leaders. Then you have pastors or shepherds on the Latin, pastor, pasture, the one who feeds the flock, guards, shepherd. And then you have the overseer or bishop. He's exercising oversight over the church. So, those are three titles for the same office, the, the elders or pastors or, or bishops in the church. So, if you... We don't have. I hope in the near future, teach once again. We have taught before about leadership. I just think it's important. We have new members coming, people aspiring membership, so you can know how we are structured in this church as it comes to leadership. Because many of you come from different churches, different types of leadership. So we believe that you have elders or pastors or overseers, and they are one group. And as we study the Scriptures, here's a summary, a very brief summary. The elders, or pastors, or overseers, they form an official, recognized leadership group in the church. So even the Apostle Paul submits to the elders in the church of Antioch. He submits to the elders, because the elders were leaders in the church there. The elders work in plurality. Most of the time, when possible, you find elders in the plural. That's the, of course, under God's providence, you might not have any elders or you might have one elder, but you must be always striving to have a plurality of elders in the church. The elders are men, male. As you read the New Testament teaching, you never find a female elder. And that's a beautiful thing. Because it is the most burdensome calling someone can ever receive to oversight the church of God whom He died and shed His blood to attain people. It's a, it's a burdensome calling to lead a church. And why would people want the weaker vessel that should be protected to be leading a church? Why would put women who are the weaker vessel who must be protected from the burden to be pastors in a church and carry the burden? Just so we can look like society, worldly society. In my experience with churches where we have male eldership is that the women are free to serve the Lord with joy. The elders exercise oversight in all areas of the church life. They are established by the Holy Spirit and appointed by the church. They must meet biblical qualifications to be appointed as elders by the church. So leadership in the local church is the fruit of God's love towards His people. Jesus loves His church so much that He gives specific men for a specific task of protecting and providing for the church instruction. It's beautiful. To protect His bride, His church, He gives sub-shepherds. 
to protect from false teachings and feed the flock with sound teaching. The qualifications for elders or pastors or overseers is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So you can go there, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and then in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, you have the qualifications for elders. And we are not going through the, all the qualifications, but the list here is not exhaustive. But it's exemplary. It's not an exhaustive list. There are things that elders must have that's not here. And Paul is addressing a specific issue in the church in Ephesus. So it's very important for us to think about this. And as you read this list here of qualifications for a pastor, for an elder, you don't see anything about his skills. The only skill required... The only ability required, you know what it is? Teach the Scriptures. He must be able to teach the Scriptures. doesn't say anything about degree. What degree he must have. IQ that he must have. Expertise that he must have. It's all about the character. So, the extraordinary fact about this list is how ordinary it is. You read the list, you're like, whoa, the elders should not be punching others, should not be violent. Huh. Is that required just for elders? The whole church. Oh, elders should not get drunk. Is that just for elders? The whole church. But you see, the elders are supposed to be an example to the church of all the Christian virtues that are required. The first qualification, I believe, is the most important one. is in chapter 3, verse 1 of Timothy. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone, and he has masculine there, it's a masculine, if anyone aspires, he's referring to man, aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So the first qualification is this man's heart must be stretching out. I want this. I long to serve the church like that. I long to suffer for the church in this capacity. So that's the first qualification the man must desire. And sometimes some of you have been in churches where there is a rotation of elders and there are men who have no qualification for that, have no desire, but they come to serve because there must be a rotation of elders in a church. That destroys the whole principle of a man longing and striving for the office. So not every man is called and qualified to be an elder. We know that because James chapter 3 verse 1 says, not many of you be teachers, brothers. So sometimes I, I, I have been to churches where they think that every man should be preaching and teaching the church. That's very bad theology. Few of you should be teachers. Don't you know? Don't you know? what God will be requiring from you. But every Christian should be aspiring the qualifications for elders because, as I said before, those are qualifications for all the Christians. You read this list and you say every Christian, man and woman, should be aspiring these qualifications. And the, the key is that the elders are to be an example to the flock of how to live. A Christian life. Uh, so we see the elders. 
And then Paul addresses another group here. He has the overseers or elders or pastors. And then there is a second group that Paul addresses, and that's the deacons. Diaconoi, the deacons. That's another office in the church. We know that by reading 1 Timothy chapter 3. Diakonos, diakonel, that's the verb, to serve. And you know that every Christian is called to serve. Amen? Every Christian. Sometimes people say, I don't know my calling. I know your calling. It's to serve, to be a slave. That's your calling in Christ Jesus. Every Christian is a deacon in the sense of a servant. But we know that there is a more restricted sense, more reserved sense for the deacons as an office. There is a peculiar group of men in the church called deacons who have a different authority from the other church members. And they work together with the elders. While every Christian is called to serve and be a servant, not every Christian is called and qualified for serving as a deacon. That sadly, so many churches have no longer offices of deacons. doesn't look good. Deacons. So, so many churches you go and you visit. I did that. I was visiting the websites and checking. And you don't find the deacons in the church. Because it's not a cool title. Deacons. And it's a beautiful office in the church. And then we see the qualifications. High qualifications. Not everyone is supposed to be serving as a deacon. In verses 8 through 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. What is fascinating about the office of deacon and the office of elder is that the New Testament does not tell us the origin or how the office came into be. They just assume that there is in the church, there must be deacons, there must be elders, and they don't tell us exactly how it came up. The elders we can trace back to the Old Covenant, how you had elders, leaders under God's covenant people. But deacons, it's harder I believe that the inception, the inception of deaconship is in Acts chapter 6. Some people disagree and that's fine, but I believe that the inception, I'm not saying that everything is there, but I think the inception is, is in Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, there is a problem. And what is the problem? Let's go, my scholars. What is the problem in Acts chapter 6? Widows. You have the Greek and you have the Hebrew widows and what they're doing. Arguing because of the distribution of bread. And that complaint is coming to the apostles. And then the apostles say, hey, we should not be dealing with that. Our calling is to do what? Pray. Study the Scriptures and preach. So what do the apostles do? He, they tell the other Christians, the other holy ones, choose six men from among you who are filled with wisdom and the Holy Spirit. That's fascinating. If there was one place that you could see the calling of women as deacons would be right here. You're dealing with widows. Why are you going to get men to deal with widows? And yet, pick up men to guard them, to help them. 
the solution. They find the six men full of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, and they appoint them to serve, diaconel, to serve with the physical, the material needs of the church in Jerusalem. So, from Acts chapter 6, we see that a, a new group of men started to be established in the life of the church in order to free the apostles to supervise the church spiritually. So, I think as the years pass and the church starts taking more structure, those men first... that we first hear in Acts chapter 6 becomes a pattern for the church later to appoint, hey... As the church is developing, we have the elders who will be supervising spiritually the church. And then they need the deacons to serve alongside the elders, especially with the physical needs of the church. That's all we have here. Deacons serve as the feet, the hands, and the eyes of the elders in relation to the practical aspects of the local church as it comes to material, physical sphere. Amen? And they are. The deacons in this church are our strong hands, our strong feet. Yes, praise the Lord. They go, they give, they see, they think about practical things that will help keep the elders serving with their different calling in the local church. Amen? So those are the two offices. And you see right here in the letter to the Philippians, the offices of overseer or elders or pastors and deacons. And every church should be striving to have these two offices. We should not be adding or removing these offices. But trust God's wisdom that those are the two most beautiful and profitable offices to the local church. Amen? So in our local church, we have elders, we have deacons. But it's important for us to think how we see authority in the local church. We believe in this church that the authority given to the local church was given to the whole congregation, not just to elders. Or in some churches, you have all the authority given to the board of deacons. They decide everything in the local church. Or in other churches, you have the senior pastor who decides everything. We believe that, biblically speaking, Jesus gives the keys to whom? To the whole church. The whole church has authority. So we, in this church, we are an elder-led congregationalism. The elders help the congregation to exercise the authority that God has given us. That's why every time we have a major decision in this church, who is called? All the members. We, we have voting. We want to hear you. We have new members. We need to hear from you. Do you accept this person as a new member of this church? Because if that person walks away from the paths of holiness and we need to exercise church discipline, that's the whole church that's going to be exercising church discipline as we have done before in this church. Amen? So the, the elders... We help the church. We teach you. We help you to exercise the authority that God has given you to the whole congregation. Amen? We all have responsibilities. 
The elders lead, supervise, and shepherd the congregation in major decisions. Major financial decisions. Decisions about receiving new members. Decisions about baptizing people. About church discipline. It's always with the authority of the congregation. That's important. That's the biblical pattern. Jesus gives the keys to the church. You bring to the church. Paul's command is that the church excommunicate that person. The church must deal. Meaning, the elders will help the congregation in exercising the authority that the congregation has. Amen? And there is much they could say about the congregation responsibilities. The congregation has responsibilities. The elders have their own responsibilities. But we don't have time to do that. But as we think about how the members of the church, they have authority in the local church, that leads to the next very important question. Who should be the members of a local church? If the members of a local church have the authority in a local church, who should be a member in a local church? Anyone who shows up? Anybody who shows up here and says, Hey, I want to be a member here. Oh, great, just join us. We need people anyways. Paul is very clear as to whom the church is to accept into her membership. Look how he says, To all what? The saints. All the holy ones in Christ Jesus. Those are the members of the local church. All the saints. And we see that in chapter 4, Paul addressed, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The beginning and the end of the letter clearly refer to the members of the church as holy ones. Or as the NIV has, God's holy people. The English word for saint, we have a hard time with saints, calling each other saints. Especially if you come from a Roman Catholic background. Oh, saints? Ah, you have to be canonized to be a saint. But if you look in the canon of the scriptures, every Christian is a saint. Is a holy one because of her union with the holy one of Israel, Jesus Christ. So, the English word saint derives from the Latin sanctus, which means holy. And then the holy, we've got to go back to the Hebrew Old Testament and Kadash, the, the idea of Kadash being consecrated or devoted to God. That's the main idea of being holy or holiness. And as we think about Paul, how he addresses Christians, he doesn't call them Christians. He either calls them brothers or saints. That's one of his favorite titles for Christians is saints, holy ones. And that's important because that reminds us of who we are in Christ Jesus. Every time we greet one another or we mention about one another as a saint, as a holy one, that brings a, a, a sort of heaviness. Whoa, I'm a holy one in Christ Jesus. I'm a saint in Christ Jesus. That's exactly what Paul does. You can go through his letters and see how often he refers to Christians as saints. So the members of the church are to be men and women who are devoted to and consecrated to the Lord. So that's very revealing as to whom the church must be accepting to its membership. They are holy ones in Christ Jesus. They are men and women who are in union with Christ. 
devoted to Christ. So, let me ask you, who, who is supposed to be a church member in a local church? Anyone. Anyone who shows up. Oh, you guys are being way too judgmental. How judgmental you are. You see, the Bible is clear. The members of the church, they are supposed to be holy ones. Men and women who are consecrated to the Lord in Christ Jesus. The members of the church are saints. Regenerated. Sheep, not goats. Children of God, not children of Satan. Slaves of Christ, not slaves of sin. It's the household of God, not the household of Satan. Amen? That's important for us to keep in mind. As we do the process of membership, we need to see that you truly love the Lord. And we see throughout the rest of the letter, so we can see how Paul is addressing Christians. These are men and women who possess Christ. They're not just professors of Christ. Many will say, Lord, Lord, and Lord will say, I never knew you. But we see here that these members, they possess Christ. We know that because in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul tells us that they have entered into a costly partnership with each other and Paul in the gospel. Pagans don't do that. Pagans don't enter into a partnership, in a costly partnership in the gospel. According to 1.6, it's clear in their life that God has begun the work of salvation. In chapter 1.26 and chapter 3, verse 2, we are told that the members of the church in Philippi glory in Christ Jesus. Pagans don't do that. According to chapter 1, 12, 3, 1, 3, 13, 3, 17, 4, 1, 4, 8, the members of the church in Philippi are called brothers by Paul, implying that they have been adopted by the Father through the Son and sealed with the Holy Spirit. According to chapter 3, verse 2, we are told that they have received the circumcision of the hearts. That's regeneration. They have been regenerated. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul commands them to behave in a manner fitting with the gospel and to stand firm and strive in unity. Something that only those in Christ can do. In chapter 3, verse 20, we hear that the members of the church in Philippi have their, their, have their citizenship where? In Philippi? In heaven. They're believers. According to chapter 4, verse 2, the members have this... They all have the same pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting, implying their union with Christ. So, that's very important, brothers and sisters. Members of a church must be believers, must be people who are in union with Christ. And let me just take some time to, to talk to you about our church, how we, how we move on with the process of church membership. We take time at Gracious Cross. Unless you are coming from a church that we trust, a church that we know, and there is a transfer of membership, it's kind of a slower process. Why? Because we want to get to know you, and we want you to get to know this church. We want you to get to know you and make sure that you are what? A holy one in Christ Jesus. That's very important. The church is not to be the assembly of heathens, God-haters, and unconverted 
but the assembly of those who were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that sad how many churches you go and they have no idea who the members are. People just show up and they become members. No wonder. Then you have to entertain them. As Spurgeon said, you've got to entertain the goats instead of feeding the sheep. There's a lot of pagans, heathens, who were never saved and now they're part of this church. That's not a church, it becomes a club. So we go through a process of interview, examination, those aspiring memberships, so we can make sure to the best of our abilities that they are saints in Christ Jesus. And then we ask the whole church, have you talked to those, those aspiring? What do you think? The conversations you had. Sometimes people can say, oh, I, I'm just concerned because of what I see in that person's social media. It's kind of strange. doesn't match the Christian life or even the doctrine of this local church. And that's important for us. Huh, that's good to know. But there is a process because we take seriously the church of Christ. And we are not looking for a specific degree of sainthood. It's not like there is a degree of sainthood that we are looking at. But we are looking at fruit. Does this person love Christ? Is this person in union with Christ? That's very basic. We take membership seriously because of the nature of the church. We strive to be a holy embassy of heaven with holy ambassadors of a holy king with a holy message about a holy God. Therefore, the ambassadors must be holy in Christ Jesus. It's also in light of the new covenant teaching that we believe that our unbelieving children are not members of the church because they are not in union with Christ. So unbelieving children, they are not members of our church. We bring them, let the children come and hear the gospel. We pray for them. We cry out that God would save them. But we believe that according to the new covenant, to be part of the new covenant community, you must receive the work of regeneration. And that does not come by natural birth, but by spiritual birth. The same thing applies when people are asking to be baptized. I want to be baptized. Oh, great, let's just... Dunk you in the pool and, and get, praise the Lord. No. We want to make sure that people who are being baptized are actually in union with Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes. That you died with Christ. That you were raised with Christ. So, even young people, we are looking for fruits to the best of their abilities. That, hey, yes, from all we can see, this person has died with Jesus, has been raised to a new life, Loves holiness. Amen? The Lord's Supper. Why do we fence the Lord's Supper? Just to be obnoxious. And get people hating us. We have had many people leave in this church really angry and bitter because we gave some parameters for the Lord's Supper. But no, it's because we believe that that's communion. It's for people who are in union with Christ. Those who are in union with Christ have communion with His body. So we are not looking for spiritual mature members, and some of you know very well that. Some of you came here and, and you were in newborn diapers. 
And we took you as members. We are not looking for spiritual maturity. We are looking at a heart that loves Christ. That's in union with Christ. That loves the things of the Lord. Amen? And notice also that that affects how we behave as a church. Paul says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, Saints is our identity. We are the holy ones. And who we are determines how we must behave. It's because we are holy ones in Christ that we must and we can walk in holiness. Amen? Paul says, But sexual, to the Ephesians, he says, But sexual immorality and no impurity or covetousness must not even be hinted, named among you, as is improper among saints, the holy ones. So there are certain things, there are certain sins, they must put to death immediately. Because that's just ridiculous for you to be a saint and still be entertaining certain types of sin, like sexual immorality. Put to death. You're saints in Christ Jesus. Or Colossians 3.12. He talks about who we are. We are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Therefore, that's who you are. Now you must dress as one. I suppose you apply to the law enforcement, you're accepted, you come, and now you're a police officer. If you come with your tank top, shorts, and flip-flops, what are they going to say? I know, you don't dress like that here. You're an officer. You dress like an officer. You're a judge. You dress like a judge. You are chosen one, holy and beloved in God. You must dress yourself. And then he goes on to give the garments that we are supposed to be wearing. Patience, kindness, love. Amen? So who we are as... Members, we will determine how we are going to behave. That's why if you start bringing people to the church who are not holy ones in Christ, how is going to be the behavior of the church? Worldly, just like the world. And notice also that he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi or at Philippi, and that's important. Because each local church is supposed to be an embassy of the holy of holies in a very dark place around the world. So you think about the local church in Philippi. You think Philippi was a wonderful place where you could just walk and see people singing praises to the Lord and preaching all over the city? No. It was a dark place. A perverted generation. The same with Salem. The Lord places this church and other local churches here to be embassies of the Holy of Holies. We are in Salem, Oregon to be an embassy of God's holiness and show His holiness to a very perverted world. Amen? That's what we see taking place here. And finally, that's the last, the last aspect of who must be the members in a local church. Paul says that the saints must be where? In Christ Jesus. That's who we are looking for. That's what we must be looking for. People who are united to Christ. 
people who are in Christ Jesus. According to Paul, there are only two races. That's Paul's theology. Two races. You have the human race in Adam and have human race in Jesus Christ. That's it. Those are the two races that Paul places before our eyes. And I like what Thomas Reiner writes. He says, When human beings reflect on their lives, the fundamental issue, according to Paul, is not their social status, but whether they are in Adam or in Christ. For Paul, these two persons are the key individuals in human history. If people are in Adam, they're under the reign of sin and death. If they are in Christ, they have been freed from these tyrannical powers. The old person, the old man, has been crucified with Christ. Romans 6, 6. So they see the question. Sometimes people are aspiring membership. The question is, is so-and-so reformed? No. Is so-and-so in Christ? Because if he's in Christ, he's going to strive to keep the harmony of a body of believers. He loves Christ more than his own selfish desires. So that's the key. And if you are in Christ, you are a new man. You are beloved of God, chosen, a royal priesthood. As Paul says, therefore, there is no condemnation. To whom? Those in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And that's something we see throughout Philippians. So please, quickly, chapter 1, verse 1 of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, where? In Christ Jesus. And then verse 13 and 14. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, my chains, is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident, where? In the Lord. And then verse 26. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. Verse 5, chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ. And you can just keep going. I have so many verses throughout Philippians that Paul keeps saying, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And that's not a mindless repetition. No. It's a very mindful understanding that a Christian is one who not simply professes Christ, but who possesses Christ. And Christ possesses Him. He is in Christ. And Christ is in Him. He lives. He moves. He has His being. And He breathes. In whom? In Christ. That's what a Christian is. So, we can see, I hope, clearly, how the leadership of the church is to be established. Who are the leaders and who the members of a local church are supposed to be. Amen? That's beautiful because as we think about being union with Christ, it's because of our union with Christ that He makes us holy ones. We can only be holy ones not because of doing, but because of our union with the Holy One. And that union with Christ makes us holy ones. 
Remember, the, the, the major question in the Old Testament is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Why? Because Eden was in a mountain, and then they were expelled because of sin. And then from there, who can come into God's presence? Who can come into God's presence? Those who have clean hands. No man but Christ Jesus Himself. Therefore, those who are in Christ now can come into God's holy presence. Remember the priests. Only the priests could come into God's presence. And they would come into God's presence. And then what would take place? You'd have the sacrifices. And they would burn animals. And sometimes we don't understand what's taking place. But what's taking place is actually a meal. God is having a meal with the priests who represent the nation. They're eating together. They're having a covenant. They're having a celebration. That's what friends do in ancient Near East. They have meals together. And now because of our union with Christ, we can come into God's presence. And we can, as the priests in the Old Testament, we can sit with God because of the sacrifice of Christ and eat with Him. Partake of His fellowship. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's this beautiful time of celebration that we proclaim our union with Christ. We are made holy in Christ Jesus. We who were unclean, profane, now we have been made holy and we can come into God's presence and not be banished, but actually sit at His table and have fellowship with Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You so much for Your Word. It is indeed a sword, a double-edged sword that kills us and then has the power to make us alive again. Thank You for the work of salvation. Thank You for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, making us holy ones in Christ Jesus. What a privilege! What a status! We who were unclean and profane, now we are called holy ones, consecrated, devoted to God Himself. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that You draw us, draw us to the cross. Humble ourselves. Humble our hearts. Help us to behold the beauty and the power of the Gospel. Thank You for the privilege of celebrating the death of our Lord, whose blood has washed all our sins away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.